My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest. So glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, and as Hannah said, we're really looking forward to VBS this week. And if you have kids that you would like to be involved in that, again, registration's still open. You can show up tomorrow. But we would love to not only bless you and your family this week and, and pour into your kids, but also if you have friends and neighbors, coworkers who you feel like uh, would be interested in having their kids exposed to uh, a community or at the very least, just some moms who would wanna drop off their kids for a couple of hours for a little bit of a rest we would love to be able to serve uh, your network and your community as well. VBS means Vacation Bible School, and I have no idea how we got that title. Uh, that predates me and my life. Um, but uh, what we're going to be doing this week uh, is we are going to not only have a fun time where kids can get out some energy and connect and do some crafts and eat some snacks, but also what we want to do is help our children and help kids from our community begin to understand what it means to live with a biblical view of the world. But just even more than that, just what it means to know Jesus to know Jesus, to know that God loves them, that God is for them, that God wants to be part of their life and has a design for them. And so we have some awesome teachers and volunteers that are going to be taking that kind of bigger message that we talk about here each and every week on Sunday morning and translate it into how our kids are thinking and how they're making sense of the world. I think uh, it may have been at the beginning of this week, so coming right off of Father's Day, I was scrolling through social media, and I can't even remember if it was Facebook or Twitter or something, and I came across, I saw somebody, it may have been somebody in this congregation, post a video of, uh, it was like a montage of all of these different circumstances and incidences where dads had at the last second saved their kid. Do you all know what I'm has some of you seen this, had like saved their kids from like just peril, uh, like serious injury, even death. Like there was, you know, a dad that like grabbed, you know, his kid out of the way just as like a truck was backing up or a car was coming down the street. There was a dad who was like, they were kind of like up on some rocks and the kid had like kind of walked right out and was getting ready to just like fall over the edge of this rock face like down into a he grabbed him and pulled him back and that's about the time I quit watching this because I have three young kids of my own and if your parents here you know that like those are the things that keep you up at night like you break out into a cold sweat when you think of like all of the potential dangers that your kids are walking into each and every day because they just don't get it, right? Like when you're at a certain age, you don't have a, a, a framework for fear. You don't have a framework for what danger is. You know, you, 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 you see as a parent all of this potential danger, and the kids are just not aware. They're curious. They want to find out all about what how things work and what's going to happen if I do this. Uh, they play around and flirt with danger all of the time. And as parents, part of our role, part of our responsibility, part of our love for them is to step in and to tell them of the consequences, to remind them over and over and over again of the dangers, but also to reinforce, Man, I love you. I love you. I want the best for you. 
And this is why I don't want you to do this. This is why I'm keeping you from this. What I got to say this morning is not fun. Uh, it's not something that I've been looking forward to preaching this week. Um, because we're going to talk about sin. We're going to p- talk about darkness. We're going to talk about destruction this morning. Um, and that's not easy to talk about, but it's necessary. And I know for most of, for many of you in this room, you call Soma Northwest your home. And part of that is that you trust me. You trust Pastor Nate. You trust Pastor Andrew. You probably wouldn't be here if you didn't in some way trust us and understand that we do love you, that we do care for you. You trust that we in our leadership of this church and just in being friends in your lives want the best for you. We want what is good for you. And part of that is that Our love for you requires us to warn you. It requires us to tell you about the dangers of this life. It it necessitates that we offer you from Scripture a better way of living. And so I just want to say this morning that as hard as it is to preach a message like this, I want you to know that we love you. We deeply, deeply love you. We care for you. We want the best for you. And that's why this morning we're going to take some time and talk about some really deep things, some things that hopefully are going to bring up and expose some stuff in all of our lives because it's what God is leading us to this morning in his word. Last week we started a series that we're going to be in this summer Jesus' last words, uh, his final words to his closest friends. We're looking at John chapter 13 through 17, um, when Jesus is at the end of his life talking to the the ones that he loved, the, the ones who have stuck with him through three years of ministry and life and just learning how to live in this world. And last week, we looked at Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, washing the feet of those whom he loved. Because John tells us at the beginning of chapter 13 that Jesus loved them to the end. He loved them to the end of his life here on earth, but he also loved them to the fullest extent of what love is. A love that ultimately would be manifest and shown to them by giving his life on the cross for them. And he washes their feet as a foretaste of that, as a picture, as a glimpse of that love that would lead him to the cross. Their master, their Lord, giving his life for them. And John tells us that they didn't understand it. Jesus told them, you don't understand what I'm doing, but one day you will. One day you will. And we have the benefit of being able to look back through the words of John as he reflects many years after he witnessed this and experienced this firsthand, what it actually meant for him, for those men in that room, and for all of us here this morning. So would you turn with me to John chapter 13? John chapter 13, and we are going to pick up in verse 21. 
John writes, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus, that Ju because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Jesus had been talking about his death. He had been talking about his betrayal for some time now. He had made references to it. He had told his, his friends here that this was coming. But he had done so in very ambiguous terms up to this point. He hadn't been very direct about what was going to happen. These men saw Jesus heal diseases uh, he, they saw and witnessed Jesus cast out demons. They saw him turn a major storm into a peaceful calm. They saw him take food and somehow multiply it to feed thousands and thousands of people. So I'm sure on some level as Jesus is talking about death and talking about like his betrayal, they're kind of like, all right, I mean, We've seen what you could do. They weren't worried about it, probably. They, they saw him do these things. They witnessed his power and his authority. They believed him to be the Messiah sent from God to rescue them from their oppressors. And so when Jesus talked about his death, when he talked about his betrayal, that someone was going to betray him, I'm sure on some level it just kind of went over their head and they did not make the connection. But here Jesus says, one of you will betray me. There's no misunderstanding that, is there? Jesus is not playing games anymore. He's saying, one of you here." in this room will betray me. You can imagine the disciples are startled. They're like, what? What did he just say? Three years of relationships, three years of talking and working and living together with Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, one of you will betray me. You can imagine that they were confused. And John tells us that Peter kind of looks at John and says, like, hey, ask him, what, who's he talking about? And I can, I can imagine, you know, they're, 
some awkwardness in the room and maybe somebody brings up, you know, kind of changes the subject or, you know, maybe they just start talking again. And, and Peter's like, no, John, ask him. Ask him who he means. You remember last week we talked about the fact that they weren't sitting around this long table like we, we see in that painting, that they were probably seated on a floor on the floor with a very low table and they were reclining probably on one elbow around this probably a u-shaped type of a table and so John leaning on his elbow apparently was just right beside Jesus and he says he looks back and he says Jesus who is it who are you talking about and Jesus says, the one that I give this bread to. And he dips it and he hands it to Judas. We don't know much about Judas, do we? You can read through the gospel accounts. It doesn't give us a great picture of, of who this man was and what his life was up to this point. But what we do know is that he was one of them, right? Like he was one of Jesus' closest people. He lived with them. He, he, he stayed with Jesus this entire time. He, John tells us that he handled the money for the group. He was like their treasurer. So there was a level of trust that these men had with him to trust their money, to trust their uh, 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 provision. As they walked around with Jesus, ministering with Jesus, Judas was the man who was in charge of making sure that they had food to eat, that they had places to stay, that the money that people were giving to them got distributed to the poor and to the needy. These men trusted him. But in John chapter 12, we read that he wasn't all who he said he was, that there was another side of Judas. And John tells us that if you remember that story of Jesus going into this woman's house and she breaks that very expensive bottle of perfume and kind of anoints Jesus' feet with it and then dries it off with her hair just as an act of worship, as an act of saying, you're worthy of this. John tells us that when that was happening, that Judas objected and saying, hey, why is she wasting this perfume? Why not take this? It this is real worship. Why not take it and, and, and sell it and then take that money and give it to the poor? But John, looking back on this, says that Judas's motives weren't pure, that he just wanted more money in the bag because he was stealing. He was taking the money that people were giving to provide for Jesus and his followers, the money that was used to provide for the poor and the needy. And G Judas was lining his own pockets with it. We see a picture here of a man who is full of greed, the love of money. And what we know from other gospel accounts is that G Judas went to the religious leaders, the men who hated Jesus, who were looking for any way to get rid of Jesus because he challenged their authority. He called them out. He sowed seeds of distrust among the people that they wanted to respect them. Judas goes to these men and for money says, hey, I'll give Jesus to you. I'll offer him up to you. I'll give you what you 
one. Jesus knew Judas. He knew what Judas had done. He knew who Judas was. He knew what Judas was going to do. But look at what John is portraying here. Jesus knew all of this. And yet what did he do? He washed Judas' feet. He reveals that Judas will betray him publicly to his friends. But he doesn't use Judas's name, does he? He gives Judas bread. An act of hospitality. An act of service. Don't miss what Jesus is doing here. Three times. Three times, Jesus gives Judas a chance to turn from what he's doing. Three times, he washed his feet, I love you. He called out his sin, I love you. He gave him bread, I love you. Face to face with his betrayer. Jesus loves him, and he invites him into the light. But instead of breaking Judas, instead of humbling Judas, John tells us that Jesus' acts of love only serve to harden Judas' heart even more. And John tells us at that moment, that Judas fully gave himself over to Satan, the enemy of God. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I give it up on my own authority. No one takes it from me. I give it up. Jesus wasn't the victim of Satan. Jesus wasn't taken advantage of by uh, taken advantage of by Judas. Jesus called Judas back three times. He calls him back until the very end. But Judas had chosen. And once Jesus saw that Judas had chosen to say, no, I'm not going, I'm not coming back, I'm not turning around, what does Jesus say? If that's what you want, then get on with it. Go do it. If you're going to do it, if that's what you've decided to do, then go do it. Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. He willingly gave it away. He willingly laid it down. And John says when Judas left, the disciples still didn't get what was going on and they didn't understand that exchange. And it's easier to skip, it's easy to skip over that last little sentence. And it was night. And it was night. John isn't just describing the time of day. He's making a judgment on Judas. That Judas had walked out of the light for good and had walked into the darkness. In John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, that the light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light. And what we see here is a picture of a man who loved the darkness rather than the light. 
Jesus, Judas had heard Jesus teach. He had watched him perform miracles. He had talked with Jesus. He had eaten with Jesus. He had shared Jesus' life with him. This was someone who was as close to the light as someone could possibly be. And he chose darkness instead. He chose darkness instead. And I think it's easy for us to read this story and to hear this story of Judas and think, man, it's tragic. It's tragic. The downfall of one man here, it's tragic. But what we can't do is skip over the warning here. That being near to Jesus isn't the same as being in Jesus. Being near to Jesus isn't the same as being in Jesus. Despite what we are told you know, in kind of our American Christian culture that, you know, we're being persecuted. And, and, and I guess on some level that that is true. But it is still very comfortable for us this morning to be Christians and followers of Jesus in this in this culture. Right. It's comfortable for us to come to church on Sunday morning. It's comfortable for us to go to a small group of people during the week. There are, it's so easy to like so much about Jesus to like so much about Christianity, the feeling that it gives us about ourselves. It makes us feel good about ourselves. You know, we're moral people. We like Jesus. You know, we, 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 want, we don't want our country to go to hell in a handbasket. It makes us feel good about our own righteousness. Uh, it, it may give us a status within a certain culture or community to identify as being a Christian. It gives us some perks. It makes people think good of us. It makes life easier maybe for your family. You know, it's just like you've got mom and dad that you're trying to please. You've got brothers and sisters that you're trying to please. And being a Christian, just calling yourself a Christian makes it easier to live with them. We like justice and we like Jesus' teaching on mercy and equality. And we say, yeah, that's something I can get behind. I like that. We read the Sermon on the Mount and we're like, yes. Jesus is all about the poor. He's all about the downtrodden, the oppressed. I agree with that. I want to get behind that. We like what Jesus has to say about those things. Maybe we want our kids to grow up in a community that's good, that's moral, where they can have good friends that won't lead them astray. There are so many reasons that we can have to be near to Jesus without actually being in Jesus. And in hindsight, it's easy for us to look back at Judas and say, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But look at his closest friends. They didn't have a clue about him. They didn't know. They didn't know when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. They didn't all turn slowly and look at Judas and say, well, that makes a lot of sense. Even when Jesus says, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. They're, they didn't understand. John said, he was there. John says, I didn't even understand. I didn't realize what was going on with this man. They didn't know that he loved darkness more than the light, but Jesus did. I don't know you, all of you in this room. And I know 
But I do know this. I do know that it is so possible for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are in Jesus, that we really know Jesus, that we are a follower of Jesus, that we have been transformed by Jesus without it really being true. And you can come to church. You can do great things. You can use the label of Christian. You can fight for the things that Christians fight for. And you can be far away from Jesus and you can love darkness more than you love the light. And the invitation for you this morning is to step into the light. Don't just be a friend of Jesus. Don't just be an acquaintance of Jesus. Don't just look at Jesus and say, yeah, he's great, but come to Jesus. Come into the light. Be transformed through faith by the light. I think most of us, though, who would say, yeah, I am in the light. I've been transformed by the light. I've trusted Jesus. I know that I'm a Christian. I think it's easy for us to be lulled into thinking and looking at this story that because we are in the light, we will never be seduced by the darkness. That because we are in the light, because we are followers of Jesus, that we will never experience the power of darkness. That we will never be tempted to love darkness more than we love light. Would you turn over to 1 John chapter 1 with me? We're going to be bouncing back and forth through this series between John and his letters. Because they provide an awesome commentary to what to the story that he's telling us here in chapters 13 through 17. John chapter 1. John is writing to people in the church. He's writing to people who believe in Jesus. And listen to his words starting in verse 5. This is the message that we, John, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, someone who was with Jesus, this is the message we heard from him. And we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John works through in these verses a series of claims that he says we can find ourselves making. And those claims are in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. And then John addresses those claims with the truth in verse 5, verse 7, and verse 9. And so he kind of goes back and forth, back and forth. And so I want to walk through these claims, and I want to talk about those and how they may apply to us this morning. Claim number one, verse 6. Me and God are doing great. We're doing great. 
Man, I feel him. I experience him. I feel his love. I'm just, I'm, we're good. But John says, you're still walking in darkness. But God and I are great. I come here on Sundays and I, and I love it. I love the music. I love the worship. My soul is getting fed. But you are still sinning. And you know it's sin. And what John's talking about here is not, you know, some kind of like people thinking that, well, once you become a Christian, you'll never sin again. He's saying here that, yes, everyone sins. But what does it mean to walk in darkness? It means that you are sinning. You know it's sin and you're doing nothing about it. You treat it like it's not a big deal. You treat it like it's not important. You justify it. You make excuses for it. You may say, you know, you're living with bitterness, with hate towards someone else. And you say, but you don't know what they've done to me. You gossip, you slander, you tear people down. And you say, well, I, you know, I don't really mean that. I mean, I'm just kind of joking around. Or, well, if you really knew what I knew about that person, you'd say these things too. Pornography, fantasy about someone else. Well, at least I'm not actually cheating. What I'm doing is not really hurting anybody else. We flirt with sin. We play around with sin. We keep these things kind of for ourselves. And we say, yes, I can love God. I can walk with God. I can experience God. But this thing... This is for me. This is for me. And we think God's okay with that. We think God's down with that. We think it's not a big deal to him. We still show up to our MCs and we talk about how a loving God with all of our heart, we come here and we sing loud and we raise our hands and we close our eyes and we cry because the music moves us. And you know what John says? You lie. You lie. You lie. And you lie because in verse 5, John tells us that God is light. And in him is no darkness. God can't mix with sin. God can't be okay with all of this stuff that you're doing right. But you still got this one area over here that you're keeping for yourself. When John talks about God being light, he's talking about God being holy. God being different. Different than you. Different from me. That's what makes him God. His nature, his very presence reveals what is dark. It purifies what is dark. It transforms darkness into light. It reveals sin. It condemns sin. And John tells us here that if we say that we have fellowship with Jesus... That we share in who Jesus is. That we're living the life that Jesus desires us to live. And yet we're unwilling to let him into every area of our lives. Even the one that we so much want to keep for ourselves. John says you're kidding yourselves. And you're lying about what's true. 
Claim number two. Verse eight. I'm good. I'm doing really good. I am so okay. Look at the pride here in this claim. If we say we have no sin, If we say we have no sin. Now, yeah, it's possible for some of us maybe to get so delusioned that we think we are perfect, that we have no sin whatsoever. I don't think that's probably the case for most of us. But here is where I think this is manifested. God, I don't really need you. Because I'm handling this on my own. Think of Peter. When Jesus came to wash his feet, what did Peter say? You're never going to wash my feet. I will never, ever let you wash my feet. God, I've got my internet filters and my accountability group set up. I read my Bible and I pray every single day. I'm serving at church on Sunday. I'm doing all of these things in my life to make sure that I stay in good with you. And John says, man, if that's you, you've been deceived. You've been deceived. And this is even more dangerous than the first claim. Because what you're doing now is you're beginning to harden your heart. You're beginning to harden your heart. And most people don't see that on the outside. Because they look at you and they say, man, he or she, she's really doing awesome. Look at all these things that she's doing. Look how she's fighting sin. Look how he's got all these accountability groups. Look at how they're serving. Look at the the kind of life that they're living. We're doing the right things, but inside, where is our hope? Where is our hope against sin? It's in our own ability to walk in the light. It's in our own ability to walk in the light. And we close ourselves off to God. And we close ourselves off to others. But John tells us in verse 7 that walking in the light is not so much about how we live, but it's, it's where we live. It's where we live. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we go where God is, if we put ourselves where God is in his light, That we are living with a humility, a vulnerability, a softness of heart that recognizes, I can't do this on my own. I'm not good. I'm never going to be able to live the life and to experience the fellowship that God desires me to have on my own. It keeps us on guard. It brings us into fellowship with God. It brings us into fellowship with others. In humility, we see our need for Jesus to wash our feet daily. We see our need for Jesus to cleanse us from sin daily. We see our need to have others in our lives pointing us to Jesus, telling us we can't do it on our own, telling us that we're not as good as we think we are. We walk in the light as he is in the light. And John says, as we do that, we are being transformed by the truth of God, the truth of his word. 
Last claim, claim number three. It's not sin, even if God says it is. It's not sin, even though God says it is. If we say we have not sinned. I know what the Bible says. I've heard what people who love me, who want the best for me, have to say about it. At one point, I used to believe that it was sin. But now, I don't know if I really care anymore. You believe what you want to. But this is right for me. And we say things like, how could something wrong make me feel so good? How could it that my needs are being met like they've never been met before and it still be wrong? You say, this is what's best for me and my life and where I'm at now. John says to you, God is a liar. To you, he doesn't love you anymore. To you, he doesn't know what's best for you anymore. To you, he can't be good anymore. You are your own God now. Only you know what's best for you. And John tells us that this is the most dangerous place that we can be in. Because we have a hardness towards God that ultimately only God himself can break down. None of us wake up thinking that one day we'll be here. None of us wake up one day and say, I am going to call God a liar today. None of us wake up and say, I think I can be a better God in my life than God himself. But little by little, we lie to ourselves. Sin seduces us. Darkness becomes our friend. And without knowing it, the chains of sin are wrapping tighter and tighter and tighter around us until we can't get loose. Jesus loves us unto the very end. And that's why John's response to that claim, don't get there. Don't go there. Confess your sin. Because in confession, in saying the same thing about your sin that God says, we experience a God who is faithful, a God who is just, a God who will forgive us the moment that we ask for it, and a God who will heal us. When we say the same things about our sin as God, we will be forgiven. We will be healed. The light of God, of who he is, will penetrate the darkness of our lives. We read that Judas was overcome by his guilt, by his shame. That he was remorseful that he had sold Jesus out. And he went back to the religious leaders and he tried to make things right. He said, take your money, I don't want it anymore. 
He was trying to cleanse his own conscience. He was trying to get rid of his own guilt. And instead of going to Jesus, he went and hung himself. God loves us enough to tell us what is harmful to us. God loves us enough to keep pursuing us, to keep calling us back over and over and over again, to bring us into the light. God loves us enough to forgive us the moment we go to him and ask for forgiveness. And God loves us enough to bring us into that light as we struggle against the darkness in our lives. What John is telling us here is not that the darkness in our lives will be over like that. But what he's saying is that when we step into the light, when we allow God's light to penetrate the darkness in our lives, that we will experience a fellowship with him, a relationship with him, an intimacy with him, an understanding of him like, we, we, like he wants us to. We will experience the life that God has desired for us to live. We will experience a victory over darkness in our lives. It's not going to be easy. And we will always wrestle with the power of sin in our lives this side of heaven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with him. We will have fellowship with one another and we will experience the blood of Jesus cleansing us, removing guilt, removing shame, removing our desire and our need to try to make it right on our own. And we can experience the freedom of walking in the light of God and his truth. That is his desire for us. I want to encourage you this morning. If God's spirit is tugging at you right now, do not press it down. Do not push it away. If God is revealing something in your life, an area where you are walking in darkness, he is doing it because he loves you and because he wants the best for you. He wants you to experience his life and healing and wholeness. You cannot do this on your own. You can't do it on your own. The darkness is too strong. The enemy is too powerful. But God is telling us here this morning, you and me, I love you. And I haven't left you on your own. Walk in the light as he is in the light. As we take communion this morning, we remind ourselves that the blood that Jesus shed for us, his body that was nailed to the cross for us is our hope, is our hope. And this is not something that says we have all of our life together. This is not something that says that we are perfect people. It is something that we do each and every week to remind ourselves individually and as a community that we are never without need of this. We are never without the need of Jesus and his spirit cleansing us, washing us, drawing us into 
alike. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you are a Christian and you are willing to walk into the light, as imperfectly as that may be, as you may be stumbling into God's light, I invite you to come and to take this as a testimony that God is faithful, that he will do what he has promised to do in you. If you're a Christian here and you're saying, I just don't know. I don't know if I really want to be free of this. I don't know if I truly want to give this up in my life. Then I'm going to ask you to stay in your seat. Because until you are ready to come and say, God, I don't know how it's going to happen. I know it's going to be hard, but I am willing to trust you to take this area of darkness in my life, to take this sin and to transform it, to forgive it. I confess it to you. This is just a ritual. This is just an empty thing. God desires for each of us to experience his death, his resurrection every single day. To know that we are dead to sin, that sin does not control us, and that we are alive to him. And that is a moment, that is something that we live in every moment of every day. I know this is hard. This has not been easy for me to say. It's not been fun for me to talk about. And I know it's heavy. It's heavy right now. But by God's grace, as we sit in the heaviness, he will bring his light, his salvation, his healing, his cleansing, and his wholeness to those of us who will receive it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you want the best for us. And I thank you that even when that requires that we deal with things in our lives that we don't want to deal with, when that requires that we speak a word into someone else's life that is hard, then in the midst of that, you are there. I pray that we would be a community of people who walk in the light. We don't hide our sin. That we don't convince ourselves that we're not in need of help. We don't justify the areas in our lives where we are choosing to walk in darkness. But that we would be a community of people who, who incessantly call each other to step out of darkness by God's grace and through the power of his spirit into the light where we will receive forgiveness, healing, and restoration. We know you are able. We know you are good. We know that you are powerful. And we pray that you would do the work in each of our hearts that needs to be done this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.